afternoon, everyone. My name is Brianna, and I'm a fourth-year senior law society major here at Philadelphia University. I'm the student director of the Arlen Specter Center, and today we have a special guest, Leslie, who's going to be talking about her own book that she um, wrote about empathy. And at this time, I'll turn it over to Megan. Thank you, Brianna. So I'm Megan Bowler. I'm director of humanities at Thomas Jefferson University, uh, now partnered with, in the process of merging with Philadelphia University to create one fabulous, comprehensive, Philadelphia-based <laughs> institution. Uh, and I'm joined by a very special guest today, author Leslie Jamison, uh, who teaches uh, creative writing, creative nonfiction, at Columbia University, and is the author, as Brianna mentioned, of a book called The Empathy Exams, uh, 2012, which was a bestseller and hailed as one of the year's uh, best nonfiction books by a variety of outlets, including NPR and the New York Times. And we're excited to have Leslie with us to, um, to talk about empathy. Um, and her book explores empathy in a variety of ways. Of course, at Thomas Jefferson University, we're always thinking about empathy in terms of patient care and community care um, and affecting those uh, positive health outcomes. But Leslie's book um, also explores the fundamental question of what it means to appreciate another person's experience across difference that includes class, race, nationality. And I think a lot of us, because of the current moment that we're in, might be thinking about empathy in new and politically charged ways and the significance of it just as Americans, um, as well as in our lives when it comes to health. So, Leslie, why don't we start in a kind of big picture way. Could you talk a little bit about the impetus for writing the book and what inspired you to go there? Yeah, absolutely. First of all, I just want to say it's such a pleasure to be here in this roundtable conversation. It's a great format. Um, and I'll just say a few words about my book, and then I'm really excited to hear from all of you. Um, yeah, so the, I, the, the process of writing the book was an organic one. I definitely didn't have a clear blueprint in my mind from the outset. I'm writing a book about empathy. This is my thesis statement about empathy. I'm going to write 12 essays that prove that thesis statement. And it was much more a six-year process of exploration, personal writing, journalism, criticism, exploring, as Megan said, this question of what is empathy from as many angles as possible. Um, but the, the whole idea of of writing about empathy started to coalesce around a job that I had, which was working as a medical actor. And maybe some of you familiar with that job. I actually wasn't before I had it. Um, so I'll just say a few words about what it entails. Um, basically, you get paid by the hour to pretend to be sick. Um, and you, it's, it's a part, it was part of a medical school training program at the University of Iowa, and I had about six different patient cases that I worked. So uh, in one of those patient cases, I was pretending to be a woman who was grieving her brother's death, um, but who hadn't processed that grief enough to be reckoning with it fully, and so the grief was expressing itself as seizures instead. Um, in another case, I played a woman a pregnant woman with preeclampsia, I had to fully strap a pillow around my belly to really get in character. Um, I also played a woman with appendicitis. I played a woman with a small, sick uh, baby, who was like a little plastic baby that I had to take with me. Um, and how it worked was that I had these 15 minute encounters with medical students where they had to ask me a series of questions, sometimes do simulated physical examinations, and 
after our encounter was done, I evaluated them, um, both on how well they had managed to diagnose what was wrong with me, and this like crucial checklist item 31, which was evaluating how effectively they had demonstrated empathy. And that was um, really fascinating to me, this idea that empathy could be something you would uh, scale on um, one to four, you know, and, and it, it depended so fully in that scaling on whether they had vocalized, explicitly vocalized some form of empathy. Like, that must really be hard to have excruciating pain in your appendix, you know, <laughs> whatever it was. Um, and, but my whole mode as a writer is anything that I feel myself resisting or feel myself confused by or feel myself backing away from, I lean into it. So if I was resisting the idea that empathy was something you would grade on a scale of one to four, or that empathy was something you would teach, or that empathy was a series of instructions you would give med students on a handout, well, what did I think empathy was that was not that? And um, that question, like what is this What is this thing, this word that I hear all the time, it's so familiar, but what does it actually consist of? That um, became the kernel of an essay called The Empathy Exams, um, about that experience of working as a medical actor and about a couple of experiences that I had as a medical patient and thinking about um, how empathy operated in those much more personal experiences. Um, and then that also kind of gave birth to this whole book where I was trying to explore this question of what does empathy actually consist of in a number of different contexts. So everything from a journalistic piece where I went to a conference of patients who self-identified as having something called Morgellons disease, which is a, a controversial kind of skin skin disease where patients report a number of symptoms like lesions or itching or formication, which is the feeling of having bugs crawling on their skin. And, but the most remarkable symptom that they uh, report is um, having unidentifiable threads and fibers coming out of their skin. And it's something that most doctors think is a kind of psychosomatic condition, like it's not, they're not actually having these things coming out of their bodies, they just think they are. Um, but what I was really interested in was, what does it feel like to have a condition that most doctors dismiss as not real? And does that mean that their pain isn't real or is just kind of exists in a slightly different way than we might um, be able to quantify? Um, what does it mean to have empathy for somebody if I don't think their pain is coming from the same place that they do? Um, so that was sort of one, almost like a laboratory experiment to think about what does empathy look like in this context? Um, I also uh, think about empathy in the pieces, um, in the context of certain kinds of uh, uh, tourism or encounter. Um, I went to a silver mine in Bolivia and was thinking about what does it mean for me to be witnessing the brutal labor conditions here? What good does it do for me to um, try to encounter somebody else's suffering? When is that a useful, ethically useful encounter? And when is it something more like voyeurism or exploitation? Um, uh, a few of the uh, essays are a bit more personal. Um, I think about how, uh, how I'm, what happens when I am narrating an experience that was painful um, and what that act of kind of constructing my experiences looks like. Um, and uh, yeah, I guess the last piece I'll reference specifically um, is one that was interested in pain, but in a slightly different direction. 
I went to a, an ultra marathon in Tennessee uh, that was a 125 mile race through the hills of Tennessee um, through these things called saw briars that basically like leap your legs, uh, that turn your legs into kind of raw meat. Um, and my question was a very basic one, which is why do people actively seek out this kind of intense physical pain? Um, how can I try to understand the set of motivations that would take somebody into this experience? And specifically, one of the runners in this um, uh, strange, mystifying race was my brother. And I was interested in how does somebody who's made of the same genetic material that I am end up doing this thing that I would never <laughs> once in a million years dream of doing. Um, but I was also, in the case of that essay, really interested in um, how do communities form around pain, whether it's uh, an unwilled pain or an actively sung pain. Um, and so I would say across those essays, a few different um, uh, conceptual through lines emerge. And one about empathy. And, and one is this idea that empathy is always describing an impossibility. Like if empathy means um, feeling the feeling state of another person or sharing the feeling state of another person, that will never happen. Like, I will never know exactly what you feel. I will never feel exactly what you feel. And if you mean it in a cognitive sense of understanding somebody else's feeling state, um, that too is impossible. Like, you can never fully understand even what somebody else is feeling. It, there will always be something beyond your vision or beyond your comprehension. Um, and it, it felt very important to me to always acknowledge that gap as a fundamental part of empathy too. Like there are limits always to what I will know about um, somebody else's experience. Um, so that was sort of one thing that I kept coming back to is like it's an impossibility but that doesn't mean we can't keep kind of like hurling ourselves at it. Um, and the, the second was that I had always thought of empathy as something very unwilled. Like if I see somebody in pain I feel something towards them or I start to feel some fragment of what they're feeling. It's not like a choice I make. Um, but partially through this opening experience of medical acting, I just start to think about, well, even if, even if there are parts of empathy that are um, kind of reactions that we have that aren't entirely chosen, there's a lot of intentionality and choice involved in um, whether you experience empathy or not, because you're always making choices to sort of put yourself in contact with other people's experiences on, on the level of, of life choices you make about your profession or about um, where you go and how you spend your time, but even micro-level choices, how you engage, are you asking questions, are you listening to the replies? And those choices have, have a pretty direct impact on what kind of encounter you have with other people's experiences. Um, so those are some of the ways that my thinking about empathy started to evolve or change. Um, but I would love to maybe just open it up and to hear from all of you, kind of what you think about when you think about empathy, what that word even means to you, what kind of questions it brings up. I'll start, Evan Wayne. Um, the difference between sympathy and empathy is they're often confused. It's the first thing I'd like for you to address. And secondly, I've heard people say that when you say you have empathy for them, that's condescending, mm -hmm. in a sense. Like, mm -hmm. And I think you touched on it a little bit by saying, how could you possibly know what a minor knows? Uh, how could you possibly know what someone who's not brought up with the privileges that you've been brought up with? How could you possibly know? And when you say that you have empathy for them, that's that's a condescension. So I want to know how you address yeah. those two issues. Yeah. So to start with the difference or the distinction between sympathy and empathy, 
as I understand it, is that sympathy is kind of a um, more of a blanket feeling of like feeling bad for someone or feeling um, pity for someone, um, rather than trying to understand or somehow share what it is that they feel. Um, and so it's 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 kind of more about projecting a feeling of pity onto somebody rather than trying to understand what it is that they are feeling. Um, but I don't. I think that's less. Uh, the sole definition or an objective truth and more just how I understand the distinction. Um, and then that question of condescension is hugely important and I think that's one of the, the, the one of the reasons that acknowledging the gap or the limits in my understanding or really anyone's understanding of another person feels so ethically vital to me. That it's less of that if empathy is stated as some sort of fact, I have empathy for you, or I understand exactly what you feel, then it becomes um, something driven by assumption and can often be condescending. It's, it's more about, I think, for me, it feels more ethically useful to think about empathy in terms of um, aspiration and impossibility, right? That you can kind of try to imagine what somebody else might be feeling and certainly try to ask somebody what they might be feeling or gather information about what somebody might be feeling, but that that process of information gathering or that process of speculation should always kind of be nagged or haunted by that realization of, of um, that you are a separate person coming from a, always a completely different background um, or in some ways a different background. And so how does that inflect what I am or I'm not able to understand? And how is that always going to be some limit to what I understand? So that, that kind of dimension of trying to keep some sense of humility feels like it's important to always have that inside the process. Well, you just said reminded me of what I found to be two really powerful moments in your book. First, there's a place where you say something along the lines of empathy is a horizon of perpetually not knowing yeah. and recognizing that. Yeah the limits to your own knowledge, and then indeed doing what you just described, eliciting information, mm -hmm. you know, as appropriate. I mean, in some in some instances, empathy might involve preserving the person's mm -hmm. privacy, mm -hmm. right? But it's about knowing what you don't know, and mm -hmm. remaining kind of, um, what's the word, uh, maintaining humility mm -hmm. about that. Mm -hmm. And then one of your essays um, touches on your own experience um, having an abortion, and then later in the book you say that you have only ever experienced your own abortion. You have never experienced any abortion. Mm -hmm. And that was so powerful for me, just that idea. Because I think so often we're asked to represent mm -hmm. um, experiences like that that can be incredibly diverse. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was a really powerful reminder of the singularity of experience mm -hmm. and that we shouldn't be assuming too much when mm -hmm. we think that we're empathizing. Mm -hmm. so maybe, like well, maybe a fault before even before we even get to the, the distinction between empathy and sympathy. I was wondering if you guys maybe talk a little bit about your definition of empathy. So we sort of have some of these the negative definition, the aphoretic, it's, it's always about reach, it's structurally impossible. And you talk about some of the different sites of empathy. Um, can you say a little bit about just how you, how you define empathy? What, what is empathy in these different sites? What does that mean? Yeah, um, I think the kind of brief definition I would give of empathy uh, is the one I offered just a few beats ago, um, this idea of uh, sharing the feeling state of another person, or in a cognitive sense, understanding the feeling state of another person. And that's sort of the starting point for me of, um, of, or the kind of perpetually receding horizon, I guess, that, that we might be feeling or trying to think our way towards 
Hi, I'm Leah Jacobson, faculty here at Philadelphia University. Um, my question for you is uh, relating to the first essay. How does empathy connect to doing? Mm -hmm. So I always think of sympathy as feeling, but empathy as the thing that leads us to action. Mm -hmm. um, could you speak a little bit about that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. First of all, I think it's a great question um, because one of the things that can be potentially dangerous to me about uh, like extolling the virtues of empathy too unthinkingly is is the the danger that um, sort of will mistake feeling for action or think something positive has happened simply because I or someone else has had a feeling. Um, so, and I think it connects to your question earlier, Evan, um, about uh, the dangers of condescension that might be embedded in a certain kind of empathy that sort of doesn't understand its own limits. Like, that seems like one peril of empathy is that it will become something sort of tyrannical or something driven by assumption. Um, and another danger is that it, it, it will understand itself as a complete circuit. Like, okay, I've... I felt empathy for somebody, so my work is done. Or I felt sad about something sad that happened to another person, so my work is done. Um, you know, in psychology, there's this concept of um, the altruism hypothesis, like that experiencing uh, some um, feeling of empathy towards another person is more likely to make somebody uh, um, do some kind of action on their behalf or do something to make their situation better. Um, but I think it's actually, um, you know, I've had a series of really illuminating to me conversations with a psychologist named Paul Bloom around this subject. And one of his points is that, that, that the altruism hypothesis is actually describing a, a, a kind of an unstable relationship. That, um, that sometimes feeling bad for, say, somebody who's fallen on the sidewalk makes you more likely to lend them a hand and help them stand up again. And then that's sort of empathy productively leading to action. But that sometimes actually empathy doesn't always lead to action, especially if um, it leads to a sort of overwhelm or a sort of emotional overwhelm where you're sort of feeling so much or you feel so kind of sad that it almost becomes paralyzing and harder to take action. And so I think thinking about what are the, uh, thinking about it, one, not as a given that empathy will necessarily lead to action and more as a, an imperative or a call. Well, how can we take feelings of empathy and translate them into useful kinds of action. Um, yeah. So less an inevitability and more like a zone of possibility or something like that. Yeah. I'd like to hear from students because to preface, oh, this is David, or Dave, if you like that. Um, <laughs> and, and as part of our curriculum, um, there are learning outcomes associated with courses. And um, one of the learning outcomes that, and I'm teaching a class where we're talking about this a lot. Um, is empathy one of ethics? There are others. Um, I'd like to hear from students, like, as these are, like, we're hoping from what we're teaching y'all um, that you'll discern definitions of them, but also, like, how do you see them intersecting? Because the way that it's set up is they're individual to a class, but what I want, I hope, is that we'll see the way that they all intersect with each other, because that's the larger goal, I think, in the end. My whole class is here, that's why I'm... <laughs> <laughs> what, is, what is the class that you teach? Uh, it's our... When I'm tired of it, it's our um, general education um, capstone course. So it's the... I don't know. The senior... College studies. Yeah. 499. 
<laughs> well, it's a course in which there's the, the general education program has, this is Barbara Kimmelman, I'm a historian at Philadelphia University, um, has an e-portfolio component. And students are asked to post artifacts and write reflections on these artifacts, which can be an image, you know, if they're design majors, because it extends through the major program as well as the gen ed core. So they're posting artifacts from eight courses in the gen ed core, eight experiences in the gen ed core, and eight experiences in the major, and then they can do four more that can be co-curricular or dip again into the major. Or, and so they write these reflections, but in various courses along the way and in this capstone course, they revisit their entire portfolio, look back at their reflections, uh, rethink them, reread them, reconsider the, the goals of the e-portfolio in the context of some other course content, like um, the concept is what, citizenship? Yeah. Yeah, citizenship, so citizenship on the campus and in your profession nationally, globally. So that's the course, but the students are being asked again and again to revisit and think again about all these learning outcomes, and as David points out, empathy is mm -hmm. one of them. So students, let's hear some examples. Have you, have you, or, or, or right next to me, go ahead. <laughs> um, Angelica, I'm a construction management major. Um, like the difference between sympathy and empathy made me think of a video Professor Jacobson had us watch, um, which like really, to me, like is how I understand the difference in the video. It gave an example of like someone telling someone else bad news, so like I don't remember the exact example, but let's say like I told someone my grandfather died and like a sympathizer would say something like, oh, well, at least like both of your grandfathers didn't die. But like, and then the... Experiences you've had in class that uh, you thought fueled you into empathy or made you think about something. You're shaking your head over there. Um, my name's Emily. I'm just thinking about a situation where I was in class and um, I forget what it, what we were doing, but the teacher brought up like the best way to teach 
uh, future medical, I mean, healthcare providers is to like put them through the same experience a patient would go through. So like my professor was saying, if you wanna learn how to treat diabetes, then um, some medical schools will actually make the medical students like go through diabetes, like give themselves diabetes. Not like, not like actually give, but like um, do things that would entice it, I guess, or like they would do the treatment process to themselves so they know what the patients are going through and they know how to better um, like inform their patients about diabetes because how are you gonna know how to treat diabetes or how are you gonna know what diabetes is if you don't really have it? So that's just what I was thinking about. That's I guess, let's say it again, uh, uh, thinking about the intersections of the, like, the ethical component of it, just wanna propose something. Uh, if to empathize or, or to be in the position of being empathetic, doesn't that put you in a kind of power dynamic where you have some kind of power over whoever the other is. I just raised that question. <clears throat> well, I, I feel the opposite. The people have um, barriers to empathy because it puts them in a vulnerable position to feel pain. And they're sort of unwilling to take a step into that gap, into that zone of possibility where they might encounter their own feelings. But I, I'd be very curious to hear what you think about that. It really speaks to one of your, your earlier points about the particular moment that we're in, and a sort of series of essentially what I would characterize as like coercive empathy that you that you need to feel bad for political opponents, uh, for people who actively hate you, uh, for the person that like drew the swastika, you know, on your door. I mean, that there's this sort of call and demand for overcoming other emotions, anger, rage, sadness, outrage feel empathy, and I am, I'm wondering if that, I'm really to return to that question of the politics of empathy, which I think David was getting at right at the beginning, particularly at this moment, are there abuses of empathy uh, that we could talk about, or, or is it always a sort of, does it yeah. come back to a productive moment at the end? Well, actually, that was one of my questions as well, because the, all of the books with empathy in the title, The Empathic Civilization by Rifkin, the Age of Empathy by Duvall, you know, the, all these disciplines, people are talking about empathy and all these books are being published. Something about the 21st century. What is going on? I find myself obsessed with it as well. <laughs> <laughs> I think I brought it up in sort of the opposite spirit that, that you just expl explicated it, which is that I felt that indeed we needed some more empathy, just, you know, observing as a political participant the kind of sense of extreme division and like inability to even comprehend each other on opposite you know sides of the political divide um, I, you know how to, how to even I mean I don't know if I can say something like this here how can I begin to understand the perspective of a Trump voter <laughs> you know what I mean but asking myself that question and asking it earnestly like I want but to like, understand but do you, but do you have to, to do you have to go that far <laughs> no I'm serious it's, to take it not that this is Anything Trump is, but um, do you sympathize with an SS? Uh, Why did you just switch to sympathize there? I'm sorry. That's interesting. That's sort of <laughs> because it actually seems really telling, yeah, right? Because, because I could never empathize. But there are Trump voters in this room. There are Trump voters in this room. I think I'm making the assumption that they might be people right. in my yeah. family. There are people right. in my family. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I actually do want to be but able to come to the Do you have to empathize? Which may or may people that don't Around the question of empathizing with 
everybody who voted another way with, in a way that was sort of refreshing about it because I think there can be this impulse to unilaterally like deify empathy, like empathy is always right. So then to suddenly have liberals fighting, okay, well do we empathize with Trump voters or not? It was sort of interesting. But I, I, I often found that the case against empathizing with a Trump voter made a couple of assumptions that I didn't agree with. And one was that empathy was always for somebody else's sake, right? Like, do they deserve empathy? Well, maybe there are people who don't deserve empathy. Right. But to me, the call to empathize with somebody who might have voted a different way isn't at all about justifying the behavior of saying, oh, it's fine to spray paint a swastika on a, I empathize with you, so I'm unofficially condoning what you've done or implicitly condoning what you've done. It's more like, how can I convince you to believe in the same kind of nation state that I want to, that I want to live in? And if, if I don't understand anything about why you voted the way that you did, like how could there, how could I ever convince you to vote another way? So it's not necessarily about justifying or condoning or making some set of apologies for it. Like that's not what the call to empathize would be. It would be more about actually trying to clarify some sense of where the impulse had come from. But I also see so many other hands. Yeah. I think that um, the, there's, there's an instrumentality to empathy that you know, the, you you may have talked about in the book, but that, that you know, what what is the purpose of it? And you were just saying understanding. I mean, I think that there are ways. Empathy is one way of coming to an understanding. I think there are many other ways of, of understanding things. For example, as an historian, we don't always use empathy to understand an historical development. We use a variety of other skills to understand and explain it. So I think we might be using empathy too broadly and to saying any effort to understand what other people have done or what has developed is empathy, which it may not be the case. There's other types of, there's other ways of coming to an understanding. But I also think that empathy does involve some instrumentality. For example, why do we want medical professionals to have it? Why were you being asked? So, one might say, okay, the feelings of the, someone is already in a very difficult, frightened, concerned state about themselves. If you're rude, if you don't seem to be, obviously you don't want to make that person more upset. That could be one. But another one is more instrumental than that. You want them to trust you. You want them to feel like they can tell you things. And the more they tell you about what they're doing and feeling, the better you will be able to diagnose them and treat them and understand what kinds of treatments they might respond to, et cetera. So there's, an, you know, there's, there's goals for developing those skills. And you know whether or not it's empathy for people who vote differently from you or not, yeah. People will want to understand what certain kinds of voters were feeling. Maybe that's the empathy. Why were they feeling so demoralized, frustrated, angry, etc.? You can use that. Maybe empathy is valuable there. But again, there's a political agenda, as you pointed out. Do you want to be able to use your new understanding from your political analysis, your historical analysis, and your empathy to figure out how you can construct a, a platform or a campaign that would actually lure them away from where they voted before and vote in what you consider the proper way. But I think we do have to accept that there are agendas <coughs> behind it. Yeah, and I think, I think it's dangerous to universalize all Trump voters, too. I've been thinking a lot about this. And 
as my students know, I was not a Trump voter. I lost my freaking mind on Facebook afterwards at <laughs> <laughs> 4 a.m. in the morning and then had to apologize. Yes. <laughs> I am not a mature adult. <laughs> but I've been thinking a lot about this question because I have family members where we've gotten into nasty fights. And I wasn't listening. Um, and I was just categorically saying, you're a racist. You're, you know, um, and I, I think that's dangerous. Um, because I don't think everyone who made a, a choice to vote a certain way want, wants to be represented by all things. Mm -hmm. Focus on other hands. Could I bring up another topic? Because you talked about empathy, and um, Professor Jacobson was talking about becoming operational, which I found somewhat dangerous, is Facebook empathy. So you post something on Facebook, somebody gives a, now you can put it like DeSantis. And that is, that seems to be the limit of empathy. I've shown you my, I've shown you my attempt at empathy. I saw your Facebook pain, so I'm responding in a Facebook manner. And now it's over. I'm out of that. And I see a lot of out of events uh, on that. So have you experienced something like that? Um, my name's Dana, I'm a fashion merchandising major. And yeah, I think it's like, I mean, just social media in general, you think that like the, the most you can do is say like, a, I'm sorry through social media instead of like picking up a phone and talking to somebody about a situation or um, commenting on it and not like being sympathetic and not saying, oh, like just giving a person pity, but really just having a conversation and communi communicating with them can, not saying like telling them that you know exactly what they're feeling, but just, yeah, just in general like that lack of communication that's not there just from Facebook and a sad face and like mm -hmm. then it's done and over with because it's mm -hmm. not, you know. Mm -hmm. There's something, oh, I'm sorry, um, Angelica again. Um, like when I think of like social media and people like I guess trying to empathize, I just, sometimes it feels like when you try to do it yourself there's like this wall and like because so many people have like thousands of Facebook friends but they don't know everybody on there and like just feels like how do I like tell someone I feel for them without being like weird or like creepy? Does that make sense? Um, like you don't know that person well, but if I saw someone crying in the street, I would feel mm -hmm. something. But it's it's harder doing on this like social media wall where there's like just like such a distance. So I just no, I think it's really interesting. Like, can Facebook and other forms of social media provoke intense feeling? You know, when someone posts because often overshare, um, myself included. Um, but I've, like, I have experienced intense um, feelings when bad things are posted. Like someone's parent died and they posted about it, so. Like do they want people to like message them and say something or do they just, yeah, yeah, no. what, do you, what do you want out of that? I, don't, I mean, not to, not to generalize it, but it just makes me curious because yeah. it, are they just looking for people that they know or? My name is Antonio. I'm a second year uh, graphic design student here. Um, I gotta make sure I uh, don't forget this uh, question because uh, um, I've been um, s um, earlier swapped uh, uh, empathy with sympathy in one of your statements. So it brings up a question where uh, do we often find ourselves sometimes um, giving sympathy when it should be empathy or vice versa? 
program, I'm the graduate assistant for the Spectre Center. Um, and one thing, um, when the video was mentioned earlier, and it's something I thought about a lot personally, is that right now it seems very trendy to attack sympathy and say we shouldn't be sympathetic, we should be empathetic. And I'm kind of interested in why we're so down on sympathy, um, because as someone who has who deals with anxiety, there's only so much empathy you can give. And so why all of a sudden are we telling everyone, like, be empathetic, be empathetic, give everything, instead of saying, like, it's okay. Sometimes it's too much. And I think that's really important with long-term political issues that some of us are very upset about. It's like, I don't know, having the general world give a, it's okay, if you just want to be sympathetic for this situation. So I think that kind of ties together. The video, by the way, is uh, Brene Brown, yes. The Power of Vulnerability. Mm -hmm. It's a TED Talk. Yeah, and it's always bothered me since I saw that. <laughs> <laughs> I think she portrays sympathy correctly. So, and what's, and, and what's your working definition of sympathy? Well, sympathy, um, feeling, not feeling their exact feelings, but right. feeling like an right. emotional connection right. to them and wanting to help them. Right. And while Brene Brown kind of points it as a like, oh, but right, right, this could be worse. Like, I don't think that's sympathy. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think in a way, like, it, it, it connects to a lot of what's been said because it seems like that working definition of sympathy is almost like empathy plus humility or something like that, or like um. It seems like humility is an important part of that definition of sympathy. Like, I feel something towards you, but I'm not necessarily assuming that I know exactly what it is that you feel. And I think that there is something really productive about, I guess, relieving the burden or even the sense that it wouldn't be possible to sort of fully inhabit somebody else's feeling. It, it makes me think a lot about, I've been thinking a lot since your first comment about that statement or the possibility of vocalizing explicitly, like, I don't even know exactly what to say, but somehow I want to be here for you or want to be available to you. And, and it, that feels like it connects also to this idea of kind of productive humility, that it might be better to say, I actually have no idea what to say to you than to assume that you do know what exactly what somebody needs or what they want to hear. It's a good question, because I, I, I think I understand what you're saying about you can't feel what other people Feeling, but do you do you not believe that like um, feelings like um, affective and it's like circulate? So in other words, I often think about this like in teaching. Um, my mood when I walk into the classroom can affect. It yeah. can if I come yeah. in all pissed off. <laughs> students, their whole the, would y'all disagree? Like uh, I mean, like because you can feel even if I don't say anything, yeah. it's just you can feel it. You walk in the room, it's like. Ugh. So to some extent, there's a way in which you can share feelings. It doesn't mean that you're fully understanding those feelings, but absolutely, yeah. Do I think affect circulates for sure? Like, okay. but I think I, it's I, uh, I think it's kind of I think it's I think it's fascinating <clears throat> how because I think that somebody um, somebody coming into a room angry it doesn't necessarily make other make every single other person in that room feel angry. It might affect how every single other person in that room feels, but it could affect them 20 different ways, right? Which is so interesting. Yeah, it could make somebody feel angry right back. It could make somebody else feel 
guilty, like I'm responsible for your anger somehow. It might make somebody else feel confused. Like, and so it's totally circulating, but it's circulating in this really variable kind of, it kind of gets back to like living my own abortion, but not anybody else's. Like it, it, each, each um, little feeling state, like none of them are islands, but they're all a little different from each other. That helps clarify. Yeah, but it's a really, it's such an important point to that sense of kind of cont contagion to yeah. it. I think it's really true. Try signing classes, he'll see this. My name is Christina. I'm a therapist over at Counseling Services here. Um, and I'm just curious if you would speak a little bit to um, just the process of, you know, writing and researching about the subject of empathy. I know that when we're learning about things, when we can apply them to our own life and explore our own kind of personal experience, it tends to really deepen our knowledge. Sometimes it shifts the way we perceive ourselves. Um, and so I'm just curious a little bit about your own experience of writing it and then how you saw your personal life or, you know, in the past or in the, while you were writing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, and it's, it, I, I love how that question, too, connects to um, the point, remind me of your name? Barbara. Barbara, that you made about empathy as a potential mode of knowledge gathering and not the only mode of knowledge gathering, or that there might be all these ways to kind of um, under, understand the world and other people's lives that don't work through that channel of empathy and um, I think that speaks to kind of my process when I write which is an investment in or just a curiosity about using like lots of modes of information gathering so um, everything from um, mining my own memories to the process of interviewing a bunch of other people about say the weird disease they have or understand themselves as having or why they go for a long run, like that feels like a totally distinct way of gathering information, just sitting down and talking to people and to more conventional modes of research, like looking into scientific studies that try to break down what um, personality clusters are associated with like high, high empathy quotas or something like that. It's like another mode of information gathering. Um, I also, there's one essay where I um, do a kind of more informal kind of crowdsourcing. So it's an essay about um, the kind of figure of the wounded woman. And I was just really curious how other women in my life um, felt about this idea of women identifying themselves through uh, pain, like whether, whether, they, whether that resonated with them, whether they resisted it. And so I literally just started a Gmail thread where I asked that question and started gathering like 100 replies. So I, I, I guess one of the things I love about writing is that you can kind of do all these different modes of research at once. And, um, and did it, I mean, did it, did it, how did it kind of circulate back into my own life? Um, lots of different ways. I mean, I think one thing I noticed is that um, sometimes the most effective way to open up space for somebody else to share is um, certainly by like articulating interest and curiosity, um, but sometimes the direct probe, and I think this connects to what you were saying, the direct probe of like, tell me all about how you feel about your dad or something isn't like the most efficient way, and sometimes sharing a bit of personal experience is actually as effective or differently effective than even asking a direct question. Like there can be that kind of um, reciprocity can be powerful. Also then connects to your question or some of what you were getting at about a power relationship um, or the possibilities of, of power relationships formed in empathy, which I think is so right on that there is the possibility for all sorts of power relationships. Um, 
but that I think one of the kind of one of also the ways to create a more reciprocal or like horizontal relationship is like two people just sharing experiences and they don't have to pretend that their experiences were exactly the same, but just both sharing establishes a kind of equal footing um, that I think can be, can be like really durable and meaningful too. Um, I don't know if that speaks to your question, but that's some of what it made me think about. Um, yeah, that's wonderful. And you know, too, if students have um, you know, any experiences where they were kind of learning about this, this thing and then you know, it sort of opened up maybe mm -hmm. some self-knowledge or just they were able to sort of learn more when they apply it to their own personal life. <coughs> the relationship between the ability to reflect on yourself and uh, like be self-reflective and empathy? Um, yeah, it's interesting. That question makes me think about um, that great point that you made earlier about um, empathy is not necessarily about just putting yourself into somebody else's shoes. It's about trying to understand like what they would do in their shoes and how that might actually be different from what you do in their shoes. Um, which is to say, I think self-reflection plays a role in empathy, like trying to be self-aware about my own emotional life or my own motivations and trying to interrogate, like, why did I really do that? Or, you know, um, maybe I told myself I was doing this thing for one reason, but I actually had, like, all of these other kind of more shameful reasons for doing it. Like, just that act of self-awareness, I think, can just open up a set of possibilities for what might be going on in another person. But I also think that it's important to recognize, just to always recognize difference too, so that whatever I might glean from introspection or self-reflection might not at all be true in the same way for another person. Um, but yeah, I, just, I would totally love to echo that question you put out to the students too, just like um, sort of what you feel like you have um, learned about or whether there have been situations that have felt like really charged for you in terms of wanting empathy or wanting to give empathy or and, and how you feel like those changed your understanding of it, like whether there are experiences that arise in mind. Well, I think it'll ask another question because we are dealing with health professionals which you started off with. And I, I, I was an attorney for a number of years and I did a lot of medical malpractice. Yeah. So I was very familiar with doctors, especially when they mess up, and usually it came from them not having any connection to their patients. Um, and that's what spurred them to come to my office. And I always thought about the dilemma of having health issues in my family, we all have, dealing with doctors. They have to walk a very interesting line, um, because if they show too much empathy, it can seriously affect their ability to be objective to make some very tough decisions medically. But if they're not empathetic yeah. enough, yeah. the patient could become hostile and also not open. So how does the health professional yeah. deal deal with that deal with that issue? Maybe we can ask the students. There are a ton of PAs. Are there yeah. PAs here? Oh, Raise your hand if you're a PA. Okay. Right. I'll over there because he wants to be talking for. Yeah. How about you? <laughs> yeah. You're a PA, you raised your hand, you're like so Go ahead.
rephrase the question. Okay. <laughs> have Have you been involved in any treatment in clinic yet? Um, a little bit, yeah. Okay. Um, if you had total empathy, you mm -hmm. really put your, um, got deep into the patient okay. and their feelings, that could interfere with your medical judgment. Definitely. Um, I think that's something that they've been like kind of trying, especially our one professor, Dr. Kendall, this year has been kind of trying to push is like, you need a good balance between like too much empathy and none, because um, you could come off as like a like rude healthcare professional, like you don't care about your patient, but if you care about them too much, then that's when um, you have like your Grey's Anatomy scenarios, you start like breaking the rules for them, or like giving them like special treatment, or even like it affects like your own personal life. Um, you start breaking down or crying when like you lose a patient or like understanding what they're going through too much I guess and that's you can't um, Properly do your job that way. So there's like a fine line like you can't cross like you can't get overly involved Otherwise, you're not going to be able to like be a doctor or be a PA because you're just going to be in the corner crying so I worked in the ICU for about six months, and in the ICU there was, oh, I'm Sophia, by the way, and there was a lot of patients who stayed there, like, long-term because they had long-term illnesses, and as, like, somebody who worked there, if I was, I was emotionally invested in the patient, like, I would, it would block my ability to think clearly about the medical decisions, and also I feel like as a medical professional, you have to be strong not only to make good decisions for the patient, but also for the family, and for the patient as well, for them to be confident in your decisions, and what you're doing for them, and emotions, like I said, cloud your vision, and your rational thinking, like Amanda said, they causes you to do um, extreme things and break the rules and for yourself to break down and maybe if the extreme measure that you want to take or do take doesn't work out you might question your abilities as a medical professional. I think this is a really thorny uh, issue for medical education because inevitably as a healthcare provider you're going to have feelings that are problematic. Um, Danielle Offrey has written a wonderful book about this topic called What Doctors Feel, and she describes a scene from her own, I think she's like a first year resident in this scene, and a patient miscarries and she walks with the fetus into a room closet and weeps because there's nowhere else to go with her feelings. There's no communal recognition of what has just happened. There's nowhere to take the grief. And so, you know, within medical education, we actually try to create places where students and trainees and clinicians can talk about these feelings. There's something in Jefferson called Schwartz Rounds, you know, which is a weekly round table where people can talk about the feelings that come up uh, in the course of providing clinical care. Um, and so it's a, there's such a tension because you're, you are going to have those feelings that you want to remain strong through so that you can provide that very solid patient care, but you can't just repress the feelings. No, know? I agree. I think feelings are good in the sense that it makes you want to work harder as well. But like, um, it drives you to do great things um, by not caring. You just don't want to work hard, and you don't devote the time and effort you need into it. But there is like a fine line. If you got upset with every single patient that didn't go well, and with every patient that passed away, or with every mistake that would make, that would set you further back than it would otherwise. I'm not saying to be like emotionless, like no, talk, absolutely. But like, <laughs> no, I took you to be pointing out the delicate balance. <laughs> <Right>. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's Leslie, when you were 
deal with medical professionals, mm -hmm. what did you see? Yeah, I mean, when um, when you were asking the question, then when people have been speaking, one thing that I was thinking about was uh, when I was working as a medical actor, I I definitely felt acknowledging the gap, a lot of empathy for what doctors had to how many different variables they were juggling when they were working with patients. So I wasn't just thinking about it in terms of, oh, what kind of empathy do patients receive? I was also thinking like, wow, even in this simulated encounter, this medical student has to be running through this whole internal diagnostic checklist, running through a whole set of physical activities about you know what they were testing in my body and also doing those basic things like how they were managing the interaction between their body and my body, and, and then also managing all of the emotional variables in the room. So I was certainly aware like there's so much, um, so many different balances that are being struck at once. And um, one thing that I was thinking about um, in, in the, that back and forth, which I found really productive between the two of you, is like this idea that it's like, in terms of striking that balance between um, having this kind of emotional engagement that can uh, humanize the doctor-patient encounter and also allow, in the instrumental ways that Barbara was speaking about earlier, like allow also more effective information gathering, but not getting so deep into emotional involvement that the kind of risks that both of you guys were speaking to come up. It seems to be it's not always a question of like making sure that feelings don't happen or something, but creating ways of dealing with the feelings when they do happen, which is part of what you were talking about. And I think that's sort of two different ways to approach it. Like, well, what feelings should or shouldn't be happening or how much emotional involvement should or shouldn't happen, but like, there is gonna be an emotional component to this work and to these relationships, and what are the ways that I can respond as a doctor to my, or any kind of medical professional, to my, all the emotional responses that I'm having, and not necessarily funnel them into the patient relationship, which maybe isn't where they should be going, but having these other communities or conversations or places where they can be somewhere other than the broom closet right. where you can take them, you know, so. Um, my question, well, this is my question, like, way before when we were going off of the media thing, but um, in my personal opinion, I think media has, like, desensitized us in a way of creating, like, non-empathy. Um, and my question for you is, do you think that um, numbers um, make us less empathetic. Mm -hmm. So if we were to hear about 10,000 people getting killed, mm -hmm. do you think that that makes us less empathetic than the one person that was killed because we, we relate with that one person more? Yeah, I think um, I think that it, I think that scale and is one place where um, empathy isn't always a great moral guide because I do think that it's 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 Empathy isn't necessarily like equipped to respond to the difference between one death and ten thousand deaths. I think it is it, it's hard to empathize on that scale. And um, I was actually thinking when you, Dr. Jacobson, is that your Leah, Leah, um, when you were talking earlier about um, uh, kind of empathy in action, and um, and also um, when you were talking about coercive empathy or the, or the kind of coercive possibilities of empathy. Um, I was thinking a lot about the psychologist I referenced earlier, Paul Bloom, um, who on that list of empathy books you were mentioning, Paul Bloom's book is called Against Empathy, and I think it's a, 
I think it's really smart. And people always think that he and I are going to be like in some kind of death match. But we actually agree about a lot of things. And um, one of them really has to do with this issue of scale. So I would recommend to everybody here this article that um, Paul Bloom wrote called um, The Baby in the Well, The Case Against Empathy. And it was published in The New Yorker a few years ago. Um, but one of the arguments he makes is that like, if we just let empathy be our guide in terms of things like policy decisions, um, it'll, it'll lead us astray because, it, because we empathize much more readily with a single person than with 10,000 people. And um, that doesn't always lead to the most effective moral action. And he also makes the case, I was really thinking about this with that word coercive, and he also, you know, observes that we're much more, it's much easier for us to empathize with somebody who shares our background or things like our skin color or um, certain aspects of our national or social identification, and that can be really dangerous as well. Like, who are we most intuitively inclined to empathize with? If we just follow that without interrogating it, that can lead to really dangerous um, sort of decision-making too. So I think thinking about ways to um, supplement our instinctive empathy um, with other things, like other forms of, say, information gathering, and other forms, other letting other channels factor into decisions so that we can that the way that we don't, empathy isn't always equipped to deal with things like scale. Actually, I need to conclude us on that note. We have to get back to TJU for another panel. Okay. I'd like to thank everyone for coming and thank you for all